Welcome to State of the Art Podcast. We are spending the month talking about art and morality. The first two episodes we spent looking at the art world post Me Too, focusing on sexism in the art world and spoke with Frida Kahlo, one of the founding members of the Guerrilla Girls, and Catherine McCormick, an art historian and curator from London. Today we're focusing on racism in art institutions. The art world is pretty much run by white people. Artists of color have been virtually erased from art history, and when a museum does show the work of a non-white artist, it's sometimes a native artifact that was most likely stolen while white men were colonizing other countries. These practices are being challenged more and more. So today we're going to look specifically at decolonization of museums, and we're going to define exactly what that means in a little bit. But first I want to introduce you to our two guests today. Today we have Heather Campbell Coyle and Amelia Wiggins from the Delaware Art Museum, and they're going to talk with us about some of the changes the museum has been making. Heather Campbell Coyle is Chief Curator and Curator of American Art at the Delaware Art Museum. She received her PhD in art history from the University of Delaware. She lectures, publishes, and researches primarily on American painting, photography, and popular illustration from the late 19th and early 20th centuries. She is a specialist in the art of John Sloan and the Ashcan School, a strength of the Delaware Art Museum's collection. Amelia Wiggins is Assistant Director of Learning and Engagement at the Delaware Art Museum, where she manages the Guide Corps Overseas Gallery programs and develops interpretation integrity and develops interpretation integrating community voices. She previously worked in family programs and museum education positions at the Philadelphia Museum of Art, the Franklin Institute, and the Stark Museum of Art. Ms. Wiggins has been honored with awards in excellence in label writing from the American Alliance of Museum and an award for excellence in programming from the Mountain Plains Museum Association. Heather and Amelia, welcome to State of the Art Podcast. I am so happy to have you both on the show today. I would love to start by having you just tell us a little bit about the museum. Sure. The Delaware Art Museum has been around for a little over 100 years. We were founded in 1912 after the death of Howard Pyle, who was an American illustrator active in Wilmington, Delaware. Um, We were founded by community members to preserve his work. And the collection over time grew to include... um, American art and illustration from about uh, 1750 to the present and um, a collection of British pre-Raphaelite art that was given by a local businessman in the 1930s. So the main focus of our talk is going to be about decolonizing museums, which is a term that is being discussed a lot more. Before we get deeper into this, can one of you just give us a general idea um, of what that means in case those listening uh, don't know? Yeah, I really like um, the definition that we've been working with Empathetic Museum to learn more about, and that's decentering um, and deconstructing a very Eurocentric colonial history uh, that forms the origin of most of our museums and using that deconstruction to recreate the narratives we tell in museum spaces, represent the objects and work with communities differently to dismantle a privilege of white audiences. You said empathetic. Was that empathetic? Did I hear that right? 
Yes, Stacey oh, Mann and Janine Bryant of Empathetic Museum were early advisors uh, in some of our recent processes at the Delaware Art Museum, and they are um, strong contributors with the Empathetic Museum group, which is really a leader in this decolonization movement. Have they been around for a while? Do you know? I don't know. Okay, that's okay. <laughs> Just wondering. Um, no worries. When did we start with them? Yeah, I believe we started working with them in 2017. Okay, okay. So a few months ago, the Delaware Art Museum was given two awards by the American Alliance of Museums. The award is called the Excellence in Label Writing. And I'm wondering if you can talk more about that exhibition and then the specific wall labels that the museum won these awards for. Sure. This is Heather. I'll start talking about the exhibition and then Amelia, who oversaw the community labels, will talk about that. Great. So the exhibition, um, it was actually a summer of trio of exhibitions that addressed um, events around 1968 and the civil rights movement, putting them in the context of what had happened in here in Wilmington, Delaware, where we had the longest occupation after the death of um, Martin Luther King, after that assassination, led to some um, civil unrest here, and the city ended up being occupied by the National Guard for nine, nine months. And so it was a real huge scar in the city, a huge scar for our community that really is still impacting how life is lived here in the city of Wilmington. And so we thought with it being 2018, the 50th anniversary, it was a good time to address this. So we put together a trio of exhibitions. Um, so first we had a show um, by, we had, a, we borrowed an exhibition of images of the civil rights movement taken by Danny Lyon when he was the staff photographer for the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Coalition uh, down uh, in the South. So a series of images of the civil rights movement taken by a documentary photographer early in his career. And then to pair with that, we had, we put together an exhibition of work, uh, drawings of the Montgomery bus boycott that were done by Harvey Dinnerstein and Burton Silverman in, you know, in 1956. And then we added to that an artist commission with, with Hank Willis Thomas, um, a contemporary African-American photo-based, um, but also conceptual artist. And he worked with our curator of contemporary art, Margaret Winslow, and worked with working with materials, images from the news journal, our sort of newspaper of record here in Wilmington, of the 68 occupation here in Wilmington, and a, um, a pamphlet that they found in the Delaware Historical Society um, called How to Survive a Police Riot. So those, those were the three shows um, and that we were really trying to get our, our community thinking um, and remembering the 68 events. Mm -hmm. Our interpretive planning for that exhibit or those exhibits um, was really motivated by a goal of getting our community involved and giving them space to share their personal stories and a space for dialogue in the museum. So we created an interactive timeline, a wall of action cards encouraging visitors to make change in their local community. And I think one of the most powerful pieces the museum was able to facilitate were community contribution labels where we ask uh, African-American leaders in Greater Wilmington to respond personally to Danny Lyons' work. And we uh, printed their writings as object labels in the exhibit. 
two of those responses by uh, the authors Tahira and Melva Ware uh, were incredibly impactful and powerful personal memories. And those were the two that won the national awards. So <clears throat> I'm wondering what prompted the museum to look into how you're presenting work? Did did the election have anything to do with it? Or was this a, uh, something that was happening before uh, Trump got elected? I would say we've been heading toward this for a while, as has much of the museum field, and just trying to work more with our audiences. Um, but certainly we've made a lot of strides in the last couple of years. Absolutely. Yeah, I think Trump, the election... Um, and many things happening within the museum field are all part of this tidal shift of um, change of opinion, awakening, um, recognition that was lacking before uh, that's kind of come to the forefront. So, I mean, certainly as an educator, working with audiences has already been a part of my practice. But lately, just the amount that I am learning from my peers in the field has increased exponentially. And I also think what's changed a lot is how vocally and adamantly our communities are holding us accountable to be representative spaces, both here in Delaware and nationally. Had you been getting um, any feedback or calls from uh, the public to make any changes with the way you were presenting work? Yes. Um, okay. So uh, it is, we were not actively seeking as much input as we should have been five years ago, I will say, um, but we were seeing it. So little messages in the guest book asking for more artists featuring African Americans or where are the LGBTQ stories in the museum are things that I noticed. Um, however, we weren't doing a lot of front end evaluation, so we weren't asking the questions ahead of time before planning. And that is a change that we're making now. Um, and then I will also just say a huge contributing factor was a new director with a vision for the museum that really focused on representing and including our local communities. So I read uh, a comment from one of the jurors from the American Alliance of Museums that I absolutely loved. She said, when people share their personal experiences with museums, they give us something of themselves to hold and present with as much care as we afford objects. And this label does that. This quote is so beautiful. And I love the idea of a museum valuing the personal experiences of their visitors as much as those precious objects that they're sharing with us. But that being said, most museums are not taking the approach um, that the Delaware Art Museum is. And achieving what you're doing is easier said than done, no doubt. Um, I would, uh, I guess my question is, like, what are the obstacles that you guys have faced along this journey you're taking? From my perspective, I think so much of the push um, from the curatorial perspective, you know, we are trained to deal with objects and to care for objects and to keep objects safe. And we know a lot about objects. The push to include community voices is really coming from museum educators and listening and to your own fellow staff, your museum educators has been absolutely vital to us doing it, us working together not being siloed. We're a small museum, so there's no reason we, it's hard to be siloed, right? You should be 
working together, but these voices in museum education and museum interpretation engaged with getting, you know, community feedback all the time. And of course, Amelia is the one who took the lead on getting community labels. I didn't know that was a thing. I love the idea when she told me about it, but it wasn't something that I was thinking about curatorially. I'm thinking about where things go on the wall and all the research I need to do, but I'm not thinking about the research you need to do in the community. I'm thinking about the, you know, textbook, the the past, the history of the past is research. So thinking about how people respond to it now um, has been a group project. And I'll just add challenges we have faced and are facing recently um, include the amount of staff time that it takes to do community centric work. It's more than double what traditional work takes. Um, Also, you know, we have diverse communities with different viewpoints. So we actively and, and regularly see opposing feedback from our visitor groups. And we're trying to be thoughtful about how we use that feedback. Um, but especially when we're actively challenging uh, predominant white narratives that have been on the walls for over a decade, we're seeing visitors react in different ways. So that's a major challenge. Um, and then I'll also just say that, you know, if some of this does come out of museum education, I think that that is because uh, the kinds of dialogues and multiplicity of perspectives that can happen within a facilitated museum experience like a thoughtful tour or a program, I think they are much more difficult to implement in text or in a static museum environment. So um, I see a lot of my peers in the field being really creative uh, in response to that challenge now, but it, it is a challenge. Sure. Um, what has been some of the um, the comments that maybe weren't supportive of um, the alternate labels or, or getting the feedback from um, your visitors? Yeah, my favorite is um, we took George Washington to task in one of our uh, prototyped, tested drafts of labels, and um, he is paired in our gallery with a a beautiful portrait of a prominent African-American leader who was formerly enslaved, and so we acknowledge that George Washington also, uh, that, excuse me, George Washington owned slaves himself, and some visitors were upset that we were acknowledging that. I think one person said who didn't at the time. And I love that another visitor came by and said, most Americans. Yeah, I guess um, that's interesting because the the problem lies in not talking about it. And um, I don't know why people don't want to talk about it. I guess it, uh, it sort of brings Washington down a few notches in, you know, on that pedestal. And that's kind of what we're seeing in the art world as well. We have these artists that are on these pedestals and it's hard for people to, to take them down when we hear about some behaviors that we don't, um, that we don't like that from them. Um, I'm really interested in hearing about the financing uh, behind a project like this. Um, I'm sure that has been an obstacle for you to face. Sure. So we are, Right now, one of the reasons we're, we're doing a lot of this prototyping and other work um, is because we're planning a major reinstallation of our permanent collection galleries for 2020. Um, and we are seeking community feedback for this through holding salons. We've had training on prototyping. We brought in, um, you know, peers in museum education and curators. Um, we are prototyping on the walls. This is what the George Washington experiment was about. 
And so because it's part of a distinctive project that is reins- that is a reinstallation, the money's really coming from a general grant that we were given by a generous uh, donor, local um, donor who, you know, didn't give us any strings. It was use this toward your reinstallation project. Um, so we were able to use some of it for this front end work. And it's really more time than money. Um, and I think some of the big challenges with finance are really that you need to have enough staff and, and, and to do the work and your staff needs to be informed of the field enough by going to conferences and stuff to do the work, to know that we need to do the work. Um, but I, ha- we haven't been able to find money, you know, specifically for this aspect of the project, this prototyping, this community outreach has basically been built in, baked into exhibition, um, exhibition funds or reinstallation funds so far. Um, and hopefully, you know, there will be some, you know, funders who, who get really get behind this work. Um, and I think for some funders, I'm hoping that, you know, it helps to encourage them to give money toward the exhibition or the reinstallation project toward a major project. Um, but we'll see. Yeah. I, I, maybe I'm being a little bit too hopeful, but I imagine, um, that as more and more museums are, um, following in your footsteps that there are going to have to be some major grants that are focused specifically on, um, on this type of work that you're doing. I hope they're going to, there are going to be, (laughs) um, yeah. Can I also just say in terms of prototyping specifically, this is something the science museum field has been doing for a very long time. And I think that at least for science museums, as I understand it, it comes out of garnering feedback that will make an exhibition financially successful in the long term because of visitor response and ticket sales and things like that. So I do think there's an existing financial model to support that way of working, um, although perhaps not one that's grant-based. Sure. Okay. I believe I read that the Delaware Art Museum has over 12,000 objects. I'm not sure if that's um, exactly right. But I was wondering, are there plans to rethink how the museum's entire collection is presented? Or are, for now, are you just focusing on um, like your reinstallation of, you know? Sure. So we are, we do have about 12,000 objects. At any time, we may have probably between four and 600 of our works of art on view, depending on how much our temporary exhibitions draw from our permanent collection. So usually around, you know, 500 is a good um, even number. And that's pretty typical for art museums that you will have a small percentage of the work on view. So one of the things that in thinking about the reinstallation has been, you know, what to activate that's not on view, as well as you know, what don't we have at all? And can we get it? Can you borrow it? Can you acquire it? We have been actively acquiring work by women artists and African-American artists specifically over the last few years, although it's been part of our planning for a long time. We've really been very active at it the last few years, in part as we see, like, you know, wanting to create new narratives, audiences wanting to see work that reflects them and their experiences more. So that is part of what we're doing. Now I lost track of where that was going. <laughs> That's okay. Don't worry about it. Um, <clears throat> we were just talking about um, all of the objects that your museum has and um, if you, sure. yeah, if there were plans to kind of rethink it all. So another thought, you know, that, that comes to mind with this is, again, it's part of having your staff has to know the objects. There's a, there's a call for papers right now from the Smithsonian um, talking about women 
And okay, so if most of the art that most museums own is by white men. So how can we find other stories within the art that we already own? Because you can't buy that much. You know, museums have tiny budgets yeah. for purchase. So where are the other stories? What about the patrons? What about the the people in the paintings? It can't all be the stories of these these artists who made them. How else can you make these works relevant to larger audiences? And that's part of what we've been trying to do. So that requires a lot of research, which is really fun. Um, at one point, a few years ago, I had been walking by a, a sculpture in our basement for probably 12 years before I ever one day decided to like Google the artist and figure out who they were. Um, and I finally did and realized it was an African-American artist, John Roden, who isn't, wasn't at the time particularly well-known, who's getting some attention now. Um, but I would never have known that had I not had the capacity, the time, having enough staff here to actually do that work and realize so over the past five years, we've put our whole collection online. We've done a lot more cataloging. We know a lot more, which is why this is a great time to start a reinstallation. I'm really interested in the work that curators and art historians are doing right now to find art that was made in the past few centuries that we never saw because it was made by a woman or an artist of color or an artist from the LGBT community. Do you know what this process looks like? Um, like, where does one begin to find these artworks that may be hidden in a relative's basement somewhere? Right. I think part of it is putting out there that you're looking for it, that you want it, putting out the works you have. Know your own collection. As I said, there are stories in there that you don't know um, until you've cataloged the whole thing really well. Um, and talking to people, being willing to. I, within my first couple of years here, picked up the phone one day and a, you know, a, a local collector says, you know, are you interested in African-American art? And I said, oh, of course. And it turned out he had a Melvin Edwards um, and a bunch of other wonderful things, a Jack Witten that he eventually gave us. But I had to be willing to pick up the phone and say, oh, of course, I want to know what you have. So willingness to listen to your community. I think the more we get out in our communities, the better. And also you have to watch the market. And there's so much market demand being created that right now there are places like, you know, Swan Gallery has a regular sale for African-American art that they've had for over a decade, actually two sales a year. Um, they just had a pride sale for the first time. So there is a lot of market interest. The challenge for museums is that once the market gets really interested, then the prices go up and we can't afford it. But it's the work is out there. It, it does take a lot of um, time and energy to find it. But more people are finding us now than were before the last two years, say. Oh, wow. buying it and if as you get press about that then dealers want to find you sure sure and hopefully donors want to find us too yeah, i hope so <laughs> politics within museums can get really complicated um do you view the museum's use of contextualized wall labels as a political act or simply something museums should already be doing yeah so this is amelia again and i uh don't believe museums can be neutral although i believe that many of us have been trying for a long time to be neutral and are just now kind of understanding that our choices in trying to be above politics or day-to-day -day social issues are actually choices to privilege certain groups and to take a certain standpoint. So I am really grateful to the Museums Are Not Neutral uh, movement for informing my own opinions on that. And yes, I think we're actively acknowledging that everything we put on the wall right now 
is speaking to audiences or ignoring audiences. And we're trying to be much more intentional about what audiences we are speaking directly to, how to not just speak one directionally to them, but amplify their own voices in the galleries, how to listen to them and solicit feedback from them before we put something on the walls. And all of those, I think, are part of a greater effort for the Dollar Art Museum to be more uh, responsive and representative of its local communities. Um, so I have... Um... Heather, I have a more of a curatorial question for you. And then, Amelia, I would like to respond from um, an education standpoint. I'm hoping you could give us more um, of an insider perspective from a curator's point of view, um, because there is some criticism regarding the use of wall labels, sometimes coming from other curators, that too much contextualizing can taint the viewer's pure aesthetic experience with the piece of art. Do you feel like this is a, a valid argument? Do you feel like this affects um, a viewer's interaction in a way that we should not be altering? Not necessarily. That's wow. That's a big question. So doing, we have viewers coming from all kinds of places to the art. Some of them are going to read labels. Some of them aren't. Many regular museum goers don't really need a lot of labels. They, they know what they're looking for in certain ways. Um, I certainly, you know, curators are probably notorious for actually not reading labels, but when you move through spaces that you're familiar with, you're not maybe needing labels in the same way. But to reach first-time museum um, goers and other people, they're going to look for more information and giving them information they can connect with in a way that they can connect with it is really important to making your museum a place for more people. Amelia, do you have any, do you have any thoughts on that? Just to echo that. And I think our whole reinstall team has actually come to that jointly through this year of putting up prototype labels on the walls, which disturb the pristine gallery environment and hearing from a lot of visitors that they really don't like that. And a lot of visitors that they feel like for the first time they can enter the space and be part of the conversation happening in the space. Um, so I think what our team has commented just to echo Heather is, is just that our um, long-term visitors who come in the museum with the information and the experiences to have a successful visit, they're going to be gratified and have that experience with the art no matter what we put on the walls. Um, but we are hearing from a lot of visitors that haven't been represented before or till this point that they need us to acknowledge uh, things in text. They need us to tell different stories and they need us to do so in a vibrant and apparent way on the wall. I've been really surprised by how much people want text. We've always been told as museum professionals, don't put too much stuff on the wall that people don't necessarily want to read it. In one of our like community focus groups, you know, one of the things that came up was that people want text for the works that interest them, but we don't know ahead of time which works are going to interest them. So giving people background for more works of art actually was, you know, where this, at least this group of people was landing that you can always ignore a label and just look at the work of art. Um, just like you can always ignore a work that doesn't interest you. Um, but when you're drawn to it and you want to know more, it's frustrating if it's the one that doesn't have a label. Absolutely. So that was a sort of surprise from talking to them, just talking to the community. 
And that's, I think, been an incredible change. I've witnessed Heather um, leading in curatorial practice that instead of doing all the research up front ahead of the reinstallation, she is on a weekly basis going back to her desk and researching objects that visitors have questions about uh, through this process of prototyping. Yeah, we may know one story about a work of art or three stories about a work of art, and then people come in and they want to know the fourth, fifth, and sixth story. They may want to know a story that you know nothing about as a curator. Um, maybe I have to go, sometimes people really want history stories, um, not not about the artist, not about their technique. Sometimes they really want their technique, and maybe it's a, a technique I'm not that familiar with. So it's going figuring out what people are looking for and then trying to give them that information and then see if we're giving it to them right by prototyping the, the text. So some museums have been called out for presenting a token exhibition with a group of diverse artists, and then they kind of stop there. So it was more of a, you know, of a step towards diversity um, to make the museum look a little better, um, more than a, a real genuine desire to, to rethink the way they're presenting all of their work. And this makes me think about a piece by one of my favorite artists, Fred Wilson. Um, he's devoted his career to deconstructing the way museums traditionally display art and artifacts. Um, I saw an installation that he did a few years ago at the Whitney, and I had one of those rare moments when a piece of art just plowed me over so hard that I'll never forget my first experience with it. I remember the same exact exact spot in the museum that it was installed. Um, so the piece, just really quickly, the piece is called Guarded View. And Wilson made it in 1991. And it's composed of four headless black male mannequins that are dressed as museum guards. Do you guys know this piece by chance? I don't know that specific piece. Oh, okay. Okay. Wilson, yeah, yeah. Okay. No, it's not a piece yeah. I know, but yeah, I know his work. Okay. Um, so, yeah, so the headless figures are wearing actual uniforms worn by guards at the Met uh, from the Jewish Museum, the Museum of Modern Art, and the Whitney. Um, and he's trying to bring attention to the fact that museums on almost every level, including visitors, are white. And the non-white faces that we see are museum guards or people working in maintenance or in food service. So I'm wondering, are you, um, is the museum going even further beyond the walls to diversify? Or is this really you know, your first step towards moving towards uh, diversity? We've had, we've had lots of steps. We certainly have done exhibitions and now trying to move toward, and we've, you know, tried to collect more diversely from the curatorial perspective and now trying to build in a reinstallation. But then there's things on the HR side as well, trying to hire more diverse candidates, trying to recruit more diversity onto our board and into our donor pool. So I think that in order to decolonize museum, you have to be doing it on every front. Mm-hmm. And that's hard. Yes. <laughs> yes. Certainly it's been museum wide. I actually think one of the most challenging spaces is within historical art collections because of the pace of acquisitions and the amount of money that that takes. Um, and I will just say to your note about um, one off exhibits that target a particular audience that might be more diverse than a museum's core audience. Um, we certainly have experienced that too, as many museums have. It is not enough. And also, I think a series of those has led us, has allowed us to 
do small experiments to build capacity before taking on this larger initiative um, with the reinstallation. So I don't think, while perhaps a little bit misguided, I don't think it was worthless to work in that way for a number of years. Um, and I will say we have been successful at at least um, reuniting with the key communities that we've engaged with before, if not steadfastly uh, represented them over the years. And those exhibitions can be a first step, a way to get to know people in the community um, in order to do other things, bigger, deeper, long-term things. Sure, sure. So, so there's, there's been a lot of talk lately about separating the art from the artist. We're finally beginning to acknowledge the bad behavior of creative men who have been worshipped and placed on a high pedestal while we turn a blind eye to the horrible ways that they've treated women. So men like Woody Allen, Harvey Weinstein, Louis C.K., Picasso. I could keep going on and on, but I'll stop. Um, what do you think we should do with these men? I guess these are kind of two separate questions. If you want to comment more on the the male artists than the men in pop culture that I mentioned, um, but what do you think we should do with these men? And that's a hard question because I'm not sure I know either. So I don't think I definitely don't know. Yeah, I am definitely watching with interest as this unfolds, and my own ideas are changing about it. Um, Absolutely. As someone who works on historical art, I mean, mostly dead artists, you can be pretty sure that most of the artists I work on in one way or another are, you know, upholding this, are upholding the patriarchy, right? I mean, that's just the nature of even progressive, progressively minded artists in 1910, even artists who may have been involved in, you know, male artists who may have been involved in making suffrage um, imagery are still, when you break it down by today's terms, not so good. So trying to figure out how to, you know, how to cope with that. I think the whole field is wrestling with that. And I definitely don't have the answer. That's okay. <laughs> would you, would it be helpful to talk about a specific example at Delaware? Are you asking me? Yeah. Oh, Michelle, sorry. That, yeah, I thought you, yeah, that would actually be fabulous. I would love that. Um, so I don't think that we have approached this, uh, in terms of the examples that you provided, but we do have two portraits of slave owners that we've been grappling with this year. And I think that kind of parallels, um, this issue as well, because in the back of my mind has always been, should these be on the wall? If so, how do we change the writing we do around these objects? Um, how do we present them in a way that acknowledges how our visitors see these people today and not just how, um, their money purchased these paintings uh, decades ago, centuries ago. Um, so, you know, we've been testing various ways of dealing with that at the museum. And we've pretty much landed, I think, on radically shifting the tones of the labels that associate with them uh, to really write, acknowledge right up front who they were and their association with um, their ownership of enslaved people and putting that uh making that the predominant narrative instead of a narrative about their wealth and their artistic taste. And that has resonated with our community members, um, which we've learned from the feedback we've gotten. And with those portraits, we didn't really get pushback either about that. I think because how these people make their money and how they choose to present themselves are so directly involved with the making of that object. Like you don't have money to make a portrait 
if they're not running a plantation. Like they are earning, you know, off the backs of their enslaved people. Mm -hmm. So we didn't really get pushback with that one. And what we've found with portraits is people are so interested in the people in them. They're really not as interested in the artists who make them, which makes me sad a little bit sometimes. But if that's what people want to know, telling them that honest story should be something they will accept. Yeah, I think that's a case where the drive to change the narrative came from our greater mission and vision right now to tell underrepresented stories and not from direct feedback in the first place. So the Baltimore Museum of Art recently sold seven works by white male artists to create a fund so the museum could diversify their collection and acquire art by women and artists of color, which um, sparked a little bit of a controversy in the art world. So I'm wondering what you think of museums selling off the work of white men to diversify their collection. And do you think this is at all a form of censorship? Of, of men? Well, they're selling things by artists that are already well represented, better represented in the opinions of um, their professional staff within the collection. So I don't think that we're talking about, you know, not showing Rothko anymore um, or anything that quite that upsetting. And museums have always deaccessioned and, you know, for purchase to buy new things, uh, for their, you know, and it's always, I think, reflected what's happening in the times, what their priorities were. Um, so I don't see this, uh, I mean, this is a, on a bigger scale. It's getting a lot of attention and they're buying some pretty amazing things with it. So it's hard to, hard to complain about that. But. The organization decolonized this place, um, and I'm actually talking to them for the final episode, which I'm so excited about. They've been staging protests at major museums, scrutinizing the sources of their donations or funding, those who sit on their boards. Uh, Warren B. Canders is the vice chair of the board of the Whitney Museum and a big donor as well. And there were protests at the Whitney because Canders owns Safari Land, which is the company that manufactures tear gas canisters and other products that have been used against asylum seekers along the U.S.-Mexico border. Uh, the, the Sackler family has been under scrutiny for their connections to the makers of the opioid Oxycontin. Several major museums, including the Met, the Tate Modern, the Tate, the Guggenheim, uh, the National Portrait Gallery, have announced that they would no longer accept gifts from the Sacklers. Um, have you guys had any experiences like this with your mu museum? Or have you been taking a closer look at where your financing comes from? We have not had demands to not take money from anybody yet. We haven't had that those sorts of issues raised in our community um, at this point. And it is really, again, this is another one where I'm watching the field and listening and trying to figure out i um amelia said yesterday she used to always that people used to assume money was neutral as long as it didn't come with strings right if, if you are doing if that money allows you to do the work um that's you, you take it and i think people are really asking questions about that now but i don't know where to land on that particularly as an underfunded regional museum um a community museum like finance, raising any money is hard. Yeah, it's, really, <laughs> so, it's different from the matter. Yeah, for sure. It's a totally different um, 
animal for us to imagine. Yeah, I agree that my thinking is really evolving and I'm grateful for um, the protesters and for decolonize this place for helping us all, I think, in the field understand this in a new way. Um, I also just think the more that we can uh, look closely at our communities and integrate their voices into our planning and at every level from the board to our volunteers to our staff, um, the better we can be responsive in multiple ways and garner support, including fiscal support um, from sources that represent our local communities. Well, I have one last question for you. I had so many more, but we ran out of time. Um, I, I want to ask a more personal question. When when you were studying art history, um, were you learning about many women artists or artists of color? What, what was your education experience like? I'd, I'd love um, to hear more about that. So I am... My, I'm significantly older than Amelia. So when I was in graduate school in the 90s through 2000, I was not learning a lot about women, more about women artists, not much about artists of color. Um, that was definitely not a huge part of my training. It was definitely, uh, there was scholarship being done at that moment. I, I can think of the great exception classes. I had this amazing class with Ann Gibson on um other forms of abstract expressionism like okay we've seen all these heroic heroic male narratives let's look at abstract expression internationally by women by artists of color but that was definitely the exception and when you're studying historical american art as you know your phd mm-hmm. and that certainly at the time that i was mm-hmm. yeah and i will just echo that of course uh the field of art history and the canon of art history both now and, you know, 10 years ago when I was in school, um, has really focused on white male artists. And there's no getting uh, around that. I will say I came to art history via studio art and with a strong interest in institutional critique. And so um, I was in Baltimore not long after mining the museum uh, was exhibited by Fred Wilson. And that has always kind of influenced my thoughts on museum spaces. Although, um, I will, I think artists are incredible drivers of change in museums and yet they come to museums very differently than professionals and they have access and timelines inside museum spaces that are different than museum professionals. So, you know, I think all that to say it's, it's my goal to take their work and, and make change um, based on that inspiration. And also we have different challenges. Mm-hmm. I think that learning, we can learn so much from practicing artists, absolutely, and what they can do with collections. But we've also got to, as a, a historical a collection and as historians of and caretakers of collections of historical art, we have to activate those works too. It, it can't just be the contemporary gallery. It can't just be an intervention. You've got to figure out ways to engage your um, community with with your historical collections if you if you want to get the support to keep them and keep them on view. Well, thank you so much for joining us on State of the Art Podcast. You can learn more about the Delaware Art Museum at delart.org or you could follow them on Instagram at delartmuseum. Be sure to tune in next week. It's going to be a great episode. We will be talking to the artist collective Decolonize This Place. So, Be sure to tune in next week.